This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. So, like most people in our industry, when I see my peer group having success and doing really well, I, I react with a familiar mixture of jealousy, resentment, and spite. <laughs> but it's really hard with John, because over 30 years, he's not only been one of the nicest people in television, he's also produced a body of work which is genuinely world-class and always surprising and often just truly gobsmackingly brilliant. So you can see it's going to be a real interrogation, this interview. Um, and also, I think, in a way, John's career uh, mirrors the subject that we're going to talk about today, which is the, the inexorable rise of the dock and storytelling becoming more international, becoming bigger, becoming better, something that we're seeing is a big factor in our business today. Um, I will let John speak in a moment, but I just wanted to take you all back in time first to set the scene, because John and I have known each other a long time. So I want you to leave Melbourne, sunny Melbourne, 2016, and come with me on a journey to rainy Manchester, in 1983. Now, John claims he can't find any pictures of himself from this period of his life. I think that's because he was probably embarrassed about his mullet. But I managed to find a picture of me, which I thought you might quite like, just to show you the sort of people that we were hanging out with when we were working together um, on a series called World in Action, which was a... Is that a Bono? It's, it's not Bono, actually, no. Oh. <laughs> So there we were in our 20s working on a current affairs series called World in Action. Um, and I guess, in a way, your story starts there, as, as mine does too. And I mean, what was that and what, what, did, we, what did you learn from that experience? Um, expenses, technology, uh, use <laughs> of American Express cards in dubious... No, it was, a, it was a privilege. It was like, it doesn't really exist now. And I don't like banging on and breaking a rule already by... Uh, looking back, when as a, I always look, try and look forward, and uh, but it was a fantastic. It was, I, I, you know, a weekly current affairs program. You could do whatever story you wanted to do. Almost, you didn't know what the budget was, so you kept spending until they said stop spending. Um, we all politicked away like we were uh, the uh, European Union, and, uh, and it was just fun and you just traveled the world and you invented stories where you wanted to go nearly always. It was just brilliant, but above all, it told you about the story. You had 30 minutes of primetime television, millions of people used to watch it, and it told you about how to construct a story in 30 minutes. And every day of my life ever since, I have learned from that experience, actually. I think that's very true, but you did something kind of, kind of surprising, because whilst the rest of us were sort of hacking around making current affairs stories, you made a very big sideways jump into, I guess, your first big international subject, really quite young. Um, I, it was just that, but I think all producers have it, that irrepressible urge to do bigger and better, and I feel that as much now as I did in 1927 or whenever it was, because... Uh, it's what we do, and it's why I do what I do now. And 
pushing on boundaries of storytelling and ambition and so on is what I love doing and you know have no desire to stop doing that and we were lucky enough to be in that first wave in the UK of the independent revolution that you could sort of design what you wanted to do you weren't forced into a department or forced into a category you didn't really want to do so it was like fun it was fun. Yeah, at the time, it felt, you know, from the perspective of somebody who was still in the, the warm embrace of, a, of an institution, like you being very intra- entrepreneurial and brave. You're also, of course, working with Americans for the first time. This was, a, by the way, we will show a clip of this film, which perhaps John can introduce when he tells us more about the background. Yeah, I mean, the, it, all this thing about wanting a bigger train set to play with was sort of... A, a, and, and the big train set at that time that we all loved was doing drama. Uh, and doing docudrama, and the company we worked at, Granada, was like the home of docudrama. And that seemed to be the area we wanted to have fun with because it had bigger budgets, you worked with actors and actresses, and you had fancy grips equipment, and you sort of pretended you were making proper feature films. So that, for us, was the frontier that you aspired to, to expand your ambition, and that's... Uh, why we did that and I left Granada basically to do that uh, to do docudrama and we in those days, God, it wouldn't happen now they gave us a story a multi-million dollar budget gave us HBO as a partner and we made our first docudrama and it was pushing on boundaries and it was, you know, we're talking, we're going to get to Superdocs but it's about that urge to Uh, push to the limits and what's brilliant for every producer or every creative in the room is we want what they want or more importantly the market now wants what we all want to do and that is what is exciting uh, about the 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 current opportunity well let's just have a little look at a clip from coded hostile which is i guess the state of the super doc in 1987 can i say what it is otherwise because it's really embarrassing and poor by today's standards. It was a Cold War drama. Uh, and it was the sort of story you would have normally done as a 30-minute Conan Affairs show. And it was about when the Russians shot down a Korean plane, a Korean in a, uh, Boeing 747 run by Korean Airlines. And uh, they've not been... Uh, and, and it's uh, a docudrama about an incident that took us close to a nuclear war. And we just thought we have fun with this and make it as a full-on film. OK, let's look at the clip. Thanks. It's really embarrassing by today's standards. Negative four. Heading two four zero. They're chasing. Whatever it is, they're chasing. Target is now at 095331, heading two four zero. Where does that take him? Vladivostok, if he keeps going. Jesus, that's a Navy base. Okay, we have two aircraft in pursuit now on 995329. Two more on 995330. No, no, just hold on a minute, Sergeant. What the hell's going on? Why am I thinking Top Gun? More like Top Gear. <laughs> uh, God, it's embarrassing. But that, that was a scene in a listening post where they saw that the Russians were chasing the American plane. Uh, the, so uh, what did you... Because you've worked a lot since then with American networks. Um, what, but that was your first in, encounter with... The, the, the scary American network exec. What, 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 what did you learn from that experience in terms of telling big stories? Um, yeah, HBO were brilliant, and I work, you know, still work for them on and off. Um, it was just 
uh, people here, I guess, work with America. America is a very challenging place to work. It's wonderfully stimulating and wonderfully frustrating. I've got to be really careful, I just remembered, because we are being filmed. And, um, um, and it can be extraordinarily difficult. And to this day, things happen that surprise me and shock me. But I guess you get battle-hardened because it's a challenging broadcast environment. And when you grow up in the cozy sort of BBC ITV structure we had in the UK or the structures you have here in Australia, uh, the ultra-aggression you can sometimes get, sometimes uh, other things like um, ignorance, prejudice, all these things can be really uh, tricky to deal with, particularly if you grow up on one system. But the challenge it offers is exciting, and the super-doc revolution, if that's what it is, that's coming from America right now, and that's where the opportunities are, and that's why I spend maybe or do eight trips a year to America, because ultimately that's where the ultimate creative action is. So All right, well, I can't bite the hand that feeds me too much. Well, I'm sure everybody here will be pleased to know we're not going to move all the way through the 80s and the 90s. No, oh, I thought we would. I thought it was a retrospective, sorry. Um, so, I mean, t- long story short, after lots and lots of success, um, John did something in 2003 that I think genuinely did kickstart the Superdoc revolution, and that was with a film that even now is used as an example of, of high-end, edge-of-the-seat drama documentary, and I do, of course, mean Touching the Void. I didn't think the first true Superdoc, actually. It's a factual story, but it felt like you were in a cinema. So, um, again, what was the background to that? What, what were you trying to achieve that was different? And how did you achieve it? It was about, just about ambition. There's a connective tissue here. What super docs are ultimately about is taking a story and making it as big as you can. And that's what I've always loved doing, as we've said. And fortunately, that's what the market now craves. And that's why I say it's all in our hands. And I was just thinking about this earlier, because we've got this perfect storm going on right now, this fusion of three forces. The creatives, all of us here, most of whom have got that irrepressible urge to do these bigger and better things. The viewers with their compulsive desire to watch the bigger and the better. And then the content commissioners, desperate for eyeballs, wanting to do big, sticky shows that people keep watching and that they feel good about and make them look good. And you put all this together and you get this club sandwich of compulsions somehow. This fuels this unstoppable rise of the super doc. And I think that's the name of the game, and that's why we're being slightly indulgent and showing a few uh, crusty old clips, but that's the name of the game right now, and that's why it's exciting, as I said just before, for producers, because we're in control. And Touching the Void. I think we should show a clip of Touching the Void, and people can decide whether they think it's crusty or not. Um, It's crispy, rather than crusty. uh, People know the story, do they? Amazing story of survival in the Andes. Joe and Simon. Simon, Joe slips down the mountain, breaks his leg. Simon starts to lower him down. Uh, uh, Joe falls over a ridge. Simon, to save his life, has to cut the rope. Joe plunges into the crevasse. He's going to die, obviously. Somehow, miraculously, he crawls out of the crevasse. And I know I've shown clips of it in Australia before. So I picked a different clip, which was actually my favorite little moment in the film, when Joe gets out of this hell, which was going to kill him, and suddenly glimpses daylight and realizes he may survive. (laughs) 
was a bright, sunny day. Wow, the whole world has come back. I was lying on the snow, just laughing. <laughs> That was the relief of getting out of that place. <laughs> you know, I, I still remember that film, watching it for the first time, and apart from being gripped by it as an example of great storytelling, just being so impressed at the the new conventions that were really being invented, I think, with that film. Because I, a lot of us tried to rip John off afterwards and do basically copies of his style, and the lesson we took from it was lead with emotion. Lead with your actors, let them bring the viewers into the story, and then if you need narration, put it in. If you need a bit of interview, let it run. But, but, but the music and the cinematic feel, I mean, was that something that you kind of brainstormed as you were doing it, or, was it, or, or is it actually just, not what you were doing? Um, did I use Perfect Storm before? It's another Perfect Storm. And it was just, yeah, every day of my life since, I've been looking for a story as perfectly formed and as immaculately executed by director Kevin MacDonald and all the brilliant team. Uh, as Touching the Void was, because it was just one where all the stars were in perfect alignment, and it grew. It was just a little TV doc, and then people suddenly realised the story we had, and it grew and grew and grew from little TV doc, uh, Oscar-winning director Kevin comes on board, suddenly uh, America comes in and thinks, ah, oh, we'll have a bit of this, and then suddenly uh, the film four, the film on Channel 4 comes in, and suddenly we have two million pounds or whatever, four million Australian, and we have the ability to do something with a supersized ambition, shoot it like a feature film, and squeeze every bit of jeopardy out of the story. And audiences in Australia were loved, you know, were great with this film. It was our most successful territory. I don't know if there's something Australian in the uh, that irrepressible will to uh, get out of trouble and survive. But it was just, you know, every day I've been looking uh, for stories as good as this one to try and make and uh, it was just an amazing success so you're right in a way it was sort of a super dot because it grew it grew to the size that it should have been and I think that's another thing about every, every story has it a potential it might only just be a 30 minute it might be a 10 minute item might be a one hour low budget dot or it may have something in the DNA of the story that can expand and fill a big screen and become, as that was, the best, uh, biggest box office ever of a British documentary and winner of awards and all that stuff. So it's... it's and was, it, the, was the business model new as well? Um, because suddenly we were seeing documentaries in cinemas and working internationally and being sold on DVDs. And this, to me, uh, thinking about, that was quite new. Did, did you finance it in an unusual way? Did you? It's, it's always been a sort of dodgy old business um, theatrical documentary. I mean, I still do them as... You, you know, uh, but there's no real business. But the, I mean, the good news about the Superdocs thing is it is transforming the future of theatrical documentary. So it is directly relevant to what we want to be talking about now. Because in those days, you were just, uh, you know, and I was always cynical about theatrical documentaries because I thought it was vanity publishing uh, for directors seeking to get into Hollywood. And, and um, it's not, it's a formidable challenge where you can take brilliant stories and make them big and wonderful on the big screen. And, but it's, they're a nightmare to finance. 
And the good news is it's sort of getting better because of what's happening with, with Superdocs. So what happened to that film? It was released, like it was released in Australia, in the UK, in the US, and it made money, and then it went on to DVD, and then the usual route, and then on to TV. And we had enough, we had four partners who were prepared to put in 25% each of the money, and it happened. So it's a sort of model that was of its time, but normally documentaries never do as well in the cinema as that film did. So it bust the model. You know, it got into multiplexes. It stayed, normally documentaries last two weeks. This stayed around for two or three months. And, and so the problem was, when you do one like that, it's like your first record's a hit. You assume all the others will be the same. And if only it were that easy. But it, it, well, it, I... it, but it is, you're right to call it that. And it, the chances of doing it now are almost better and the opportunities of what you might do with it are greater because of what's happening to the market. I'm sure after Touching the Void, pretty much every journalist and filmmaker in London was sending you their ideas, maybe including me, saying, oh, I've got a good story, John, let's make a feature doc. They, they were seemed, crap, I seem to remember. They, they were, pretty, <laughs> pretty, were pretty poor. But you must have had to apply some pretty serious filtering to all the ideas that were crossing your desk all of a sudden. It's quite well, a big jump from 30 minutes to 90. It's a story. It's about the story. I, 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 those of you who have been to the discussions we had yesterday about the new thing I've been doing, Sherpa, um, you know, maybe heard, or, or when we did the Q&A uh, at the end of yesterday, you know, it's all about the power of the story. I think I once did a talk at AIDC the last time, the only other time, uh, I'd been when it was in Adelaide, which is called Maximising the Power of the Story, which I'm cunningly recycling for the film school in Sydney next week. And, um, and, and that's the name of the game. That is the name of the so game. So which stories did you pick next, and how did they go? Um, oh, I did Deep Water, um, which actually is the favorite, most favourite doc I've ever done, which was the story of the round-the-world yachtsman, uh, Donald Crowhurst who believed he would win this single-handed yacht race and then got involved in this amazing deception and, and decided to circle around the Azores while everyone else was going around the world and then rejoin the race in the first position and, and sail home. Uh, and a great story with a few structural problems like uh, he was no longer alive and there was no archive and we didn't want to do any recreation. But, um, <laughs> but apart from that, it was great. And what's really interesting about the power of the story and what's happening with Superdocs, I keep on trying to get the title of the session in as many times as possible, is, um, is guess what's happening? James Marsh, brilliant director, did Man on Wire, did Project Nim, two of my favorite documentaries, did that very good um, Stephen Hawking film last year. What was that called? Theory of Everything? Was it that one? Yeah. Or was that the Bletchley Park one? Anyway, that one. Um, guess what film he's doing next? He's doing the feature film story of Deep Water with Colin Firth playing Donald Crowhurst. Oh, that's brilliant. So, you know, stories have a long life and exist in many ways, and that did. But I, that was sort of my favourite doc. Um, and again, because of the success of Touching the Void, I got it made when normally we wouldn't be able to get it made. And, you know, so make hay while the sun shines. Okay, well, let's look at a little clip and see how you managed to cope with having no archive and no drama. And no interviews. Can we see the deep water clip, please? Oh, sorry, it was on radio, I forgot to say. <laughs> so, also, we've entered the podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's a really, really powerful film. And 
complete um, flop at the box office. Well, that was my next question. How did it do? <laughs> it was a complete flop at the box office film. <laughs> um, Why do you think that was? don't know. I mean, it was... It's obviously a good story. Otherwise, James Marsh and Colin Firth and others wouldn't be doing the movie version, which is in the edit right now. Um, something about touching the void was so powerful, and the book had been successful. It touched a lot of people. Something about deep water. Um, I don't know. In some Is it ways, the difference it, in a happy ending and a sad ending. The old Hollywood thing. Yeah, it didn't help that he was dead and everyone was sad. Um, but um, um, but. I don't know. It's, and you assume with what's going on right now in the market that because it's big, it will be good. But actually, it's, it's almost a greater chance it will be bad. Because when you have too much money and too much time, well, so you can never have too much money, delete previous words. Um, um, when you've got money and time and ambition, it doesn't always work. Look how many feature films you're disappointed with. And that's true of the sort of the super dogs. It, there's no direct correlation between having a seven-digit budget and absolute banker quality. There's often a relationship, but it's absolutely not guaranteed. Or there can be brilliant big docs that are about to be made with the million-dollar-plus budgets, which will just ultimately be little art house films that just probably shouldn't have been financed at that level. But that's you know, it's just what's happening in movies, isn't it? and how many movies are disappointing. And, uh, and that's going to happen with the Superdogs as well. So if a, um, a, de a dead sailor is a bit of a downbeat story, boxing matches usually work? Yeah, that was... Oh, yeah, because that's really interesting because I'm, I like sport, but sport is a dead zone for doing documentaries. And the irony is I'm in development with Universal right now doing another sporting documentary because the challenge is, did you see Senna? Senna wasn't about motor racing. Um, and this film, Thriller Manila, about the epic, iconic duel uh, between Joe Fraser and uh, Muhammad Ali wasn't about boxing. It was about race, religion, bigotry, and lots of other themes. And they just happened to be beating the shit out of each other in the boxing ring, and that became representative of all those other things. But um, so that's the way to do a sports doc, and that's why I've not done one since, but what I hope is my next feature doc, which I'm doing with um, someone at the moment, is going to be a sporting doc, where we've tried to find a proper story out of a sporting icon. But it's really tough to do, which is sort of why I'm doing it. But Through the Manila, I really like this film, and again, it became very big budget, largely because of the truly exorbitant cost of archive, which is the most I've ever paid in my life for archive. Uh, and it was great because HBO came on board with Channel 4 and it was just one of those films that people very kindly still uh, still mention. So um, let's look at round four. Uh, I've been really shit at setting up the clip, sorry. Let's look at round 14 of the epic duel between Joe Frazier and, Mah and Muhammad Ali. <laughs> Closest I've seen somebody come to killing somebody. He's very close to killing him. Very close. He was hitting him straight right hands with a left jab in front, open. It's the most brutal of the 41 rounds that they fought. 
there are five or six times where Ali throws combinations where you expect Joe to fall. And he staggers, but his will keeps him up. what gets people killed in boxing where the fight becomes more important than life and death and that's why people die in boxing every time Joe Frazier sadly died a couple of years ago and, and sort of working him was working with him was the most bizarre and magical experience ever when I first went to see him in a gym in Philadelphia which was strike what was that famous Oscar-winning film a bit ago set in the Philadelphia gym? Rocky you know and the other one <laughs> anyway um, come Rocky on. Two. No, <laughs> the other one with Clint Eastwood. Thank you very much. I know it was just like that, and I was going to do Thriller in Manila, like touching the void, with Joe Frazier narrating the life story, just like Joe Simpson did. And I went into the gym, and Joe started speaking to me, and he's been so bashed up by fighting and everything, I couldn't understand a single word he said. So I thought, that's not great. We're not, uh, so we had to find a different way mm. of telling the story. Uh, and I'm really pleased with that film because, you know, the mantra in telly and in the world of these big docs is sport doesn't work. And I've seen very few people prefer to watch sport live and don't want to watch stories and documentaries about it. But I do think, you know, Senna disproved the rule. I thought that was a great film. So if, if, Deep Water, if Deepwater was here and Touching the Water was here, where did... Would Thriller in the Middle Island. What are we on? What criteria? Commercial success. Oh, Thriller was a success. Yeah, we had the option of releasing it theatrically, but that's the flaw of the model mostly, because all you end up doing is using the theatrical run, all the money disappears, subsidising the run. So any money you might make out of the DVD it has all gone to subsidise the theatrical run. So we had to take. Um, We'll talk about that maybe later, the sort of where commerce and creativity collide is quite an interesting space that I wrestle with every day of the week, and that most people here do as well, I'm sure. Um, so we chose not to release it theatrically. And also, making it, releasing it theatrically wouldn't mean fight footage like that would cost an unbelievably astronomical sum rather than just a regular astronomical sum. So, uh, <laughs> so I mean, it is indeed very arbitrary and hard to predict what stories work internationally, but having gone through these first few and, of course, all the ones you've done since. Have you drawn any kind of rules of thumb about stories that can travel, that can just, that can be made big and made better? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, uh, emotional connection, you, you talked about that earlier, is just the most important thing. Universality of the theme. Uh, you, you know, the the will to survive in Touching the Void, some of the things we touched on in Through the Manila. You know, there were things we touched on in Deep Water. It's just the audience didn't seem to like it as much, you know, um, such as, you know, believing in something that you could never do and getting in too deep. That's what, um, uh, that's what uh, Deep Water is all about. But it's finding those universally connecting uh, ideas that take a story beyond the prosaic and beyond the regional, beyond an Australian story or a Brit story or an American story, into something that transcends that and is a universal sort of story. I mean, we've squeezed the death out of 
survival. That's a bad metaphor, isn't it? Um, because um, it's just such a great genre. You know, I've been asked a lot to do with Sherpa, why do I always seem to do disasters? Because disasters and extremes and people near close to death at the edge of their physical or mental uh, limits is an incredibly rich story area. And I keep going back to it because it is incredibly rich and it's universal. And, you know, after touching the void, someone you know very well called Jane Root, who was then controller of Discovery Channel, loved that film to bits and commissioned lots of mini ones called I Shouldn't Be Alive. And we made 60 hours of those at about $700,000 an hour. And if you're trying to build an independent production company, uh, that's quite a nice commission. So talk about building on something and finding a theme. And I Shouldn't Be Alive was lots of like done in Touching the Void style, lots of amazing stories of survival, some Aussie ones, all from, you know, just great, because they were universal, they were universal. Likewise, um, you know, a lot of the disaster things we've done, like the films about the tsunami, or I, I hadn't meant to, to talk about this, but it's sort of relevant because we're talking, doing it right now. I mean, I've done the biggest story that happened in my lifetime, and I guess most of yours was 9-11. I've done uh, 11 films now on 9-11 on because I'm just obsessed and trying to understand what it was like being a person, being an individual, going into work that day, you know, going up to the 88th floor and suddenly involved in this defining day in our history. And I can't let go of that idea, which is why I keep making them, because and there's a constant appetite. I don't think it's ghoulish. I think it's just fascination about the world around us. And, um, you know, uh, do we have a clip of Falling Man? No, it's not relevant. But, you know, I did this film called Falling Man about people jumping, you know, really difficult stuff about people jumping from the Twin Towers. Another one called Phone Calls from the Towers about people, they sound so ghoulish and shit talking about them, but they were very sensitive films that connected. It's all that thing about connective mm. tissue. That's what works on feature docs. That's what worked because you think there for the grace of God go I, or that's my loved one in the Twin Tower, mm. or that's my loved one as the Bandarache tsunami wipes out the beach in Thailand, or that's my loved one on, I'm obsessed by Malaysian Flight yeah, no, 93. Right. I mean, my own small contribution to that genre was the flight that fought back about yes, Flight 93. Exactly. Yeah. And everybody who came to that film was talking about, would, have, would I have had the balls to do what those guys did? That's all it was really all about, putting yourself in the situation and making it feel as real as possible. But um, there's something about this fascination. That's why people watch those things. They wouldn't get made if people don't watch them. And sort of the survival genre and the sort of, you know, Sherpa had elements of that about it as well, because you were seeing life and death in that most iconic of backdrops, you know, Mount Everest. Yeah. So it's, that's a sort of theme that I'm, you know, I'm quite a lot of what I'm doing right now. It doesn't mean I'm a disaster porn sort of addict, you know, don't go to all these dodgy disaster porn websites. It's just, it's about obsessively finding the stories that will work. And, and with that universality, not parochial, that's the, that's the key. And right, well, I'm going, everyone, back, I'm going to drag you back to you to the retrospective for one second, because- I was just having, trying to mention Superdoc again. I'm very impressed. <laughs> so having struggled with a story where there's no archive and no interviews, you, you then made a story about something that never existed at all. Dragons. Oh, thank you. Um, oh, yeah, because I saw it just going on about worthy things like, you know, 9-11 and tsunamis and stuff. Uh, and 
uh, it's sort of, um, I can be a tart as well. And um, I, I like push, it's nice to push yourself in a different area. So I did a film that I'm really proud of where everything was true apart from one key fact, which is that dragons don't exist. But <laughs> once you get over that one fact, then let's imagine they did exist. This is what dragons would be like. And I did this film because I wanted to learn about advanced CGI and I wanted to work with the guys at Framestore, the great London CGI house, who had just done um, Harry Potter or something. And I wanted to do sort of seven digit CGI and just have fun and, and stop doing disasters and plane crashes and tsunamis. And, and, um, and this actually became, uh, you know, I really enjoyed doing it. I learned something. And if I ever need those CGI skills again, which I do quite often, I learned so much. So um, this is Dragons, a fantasy made real. It is a courtship ritual that is as perilous as it is spectacular. At the height of her climb, they lock talons and drop in a dazzling free fall. It is the ultimate test of faith. Should have gone for a job on Game of Thrones, John. Most people just go to a bar and have cocktails and then try and get off that way. If you're a dragon, it's much more complicated. Sorry about all those words on it. We have to. Use, I could only find that in a promotional tape with all that stuff about the most watched program in history or something. So it was really good fun. It's nice to do, uh, you know, doing stuff differently, uh, doing different stuff just because you get slightly bored doing the same stuff. And um, you know, I'm doing that right now on something I can't talk about, which is extremely different from what I might normally be associated with. It didn't take you long to get back to survival. Uh, truly upscaling it this time, huh. a full drama with a major Hollywood star, 127 hours. Really brilliant film, actually very exciting. And I guess had some of the, felt similar to Touching the Void, but kicked on a little bit further and maybe with a, I don't know, more emphasis on actual kind of acting on camera. But that's taking exactly what the opportunity is all about now to do the audacious with the story, to push it beyond the standard three, four hundred thousand dollar, I don't know, whatever per hour documentary. We were going to do, you know, it's this amazing story, Aaron Ralston, who was uh, canyoneering, I think that's what it's called in Utah, in the canyon on his own, no one knew where he was, and then a chockstone fell on his arm, you know the story. and blocked him and he was trapped in the middle of nowhere and believe me it's truly scary because I'd been in the actual canyon with Aaron where it was and you were in the middle of nowhere and no mobile phone works and it's truly scary and Aaron was trapped for 127 hours uh, under this rock until um, he had to cut his own arm off to escape. A brilliant, brilliant, brilliant story and then this is sort of interesting because this whole mindset that informs 
the ambition you can do with documentaries is sometimes don't make them a documentary. We tried to get it away as a documentary, and actually we really struggled with it. Um, someone actually here, and that was it last night, sorry, too many cocktails are impacting, impacting on my uh, gray cells, but someone said I actually pitched it to them Oh, I know, it was from Mark Bell from the BBC. I actually pitched it to the BBC as a sort of documentary, and they passed on it. But, um, so because, how, did it, how did it move from that to what it Because Danny Boyle, who's a rather good director, heard I'd got the rights and sort of started saying, I want to do that as my next film. And then Aaron Ralston, the guy who uh, The Rock fell on, as so often happens with true stories, those people have feel have such a powerful attachment you know, every day of his life Aaron still talks about that rock on his uh, falling on his arm every day of his life Joe Simpson who I'm working with right now on something Joe still talks about the canyon it's a life defining thing and it's with you all your life so Aaron was unsure about Danny doing the um, he wasn't ready for a feature film where slightly different rules apply than a more rigid documentary but eventually and, and a very distinguished documentary director, very distinguished documentary director, was going to do what became 127 Hours. And then, uh, I'm not going to name him because we've been filmed, and then uh, Danny came back in the frame and I got Aaron to agree, and that led to 127 Hours, which is just, as part of my irrepressible, that desire to do something, I always wanted to do a very big multi-million feature film with a star, James Franco, and everything. And, and it was, you know, it, it was interesting to see, it's like blowing up a balloon, to see how much you could blow it up, how high it would rise. And that's um, all about, you know, a great story can fly very high indeed. And that's sort of what 127 Hours was. And I only got the story, and I've said this in Australia before, because Aaron, who'd had millions of offers from Hollywood, most of them with two digits more than I ever was able to pay him, why did he give us the rights to this amazing story? Because he loved touching the void. So good things lead mm. to other good things. Mm. So um, this is the moment where it starts going very badly wrong for Aaron, played by James Franco. Well, at least so, I spared you the scene where we cut his arm off. So, it was wonderful, by the Hollywood, way. Hollywood, such a different place, surely, to work, and uh, all the things that you'd, that had started at World in Action and that you developed through Touching the Void and all the other films, was it nevertheless a different level of challenge and scrutiny, or, or was it actually just surprisingly the same? I don't know. But, but totally the same and totally different. I mean, what I was just looking at that clip again, and, you know, a lot, a lot of us here, most of us here in that world of documentary, you know, when you're doing reenactment with about an $80 budget and a shit extra that you're giving dialogue to, and you've got about half an hour to shoot it, and it all can look really crap if you're not careful. Suddenly, with a proper actor, a mega-talented director, a proper crew, a budget in the tens of millions, it is wonderfully liberating to see your little story been given the resources to squeeze everything out of it, and that was very gratifying. I remember the moment I saw that in the screening room, the first Rothkart, and you know it was a very exciting feeling. Suddenly, to have so much resources to on a story that was good enough. I don't know if seen, people have seen the film, but that was good enough to uh, take being put on steroids and. Uh, you know, there's a lot that's very different about that world of Hollywood, which I can't, I'm not going to really talk about publicly, but um, it's it, it's a bug, and I, you know, and I've, I've got something, I'm doing something right now 
which is my new favourite story, which we're hoping to do as a big feature film, and and it's so exciting, you know. And I, it is that ultimate. If a documentary is something that is true, and a super doc is something a bigger version of that, then there is no bigger version than doing a big feature film, you know. And our, you know, my. It's funny to refer to him as a hero because he's a colleague. But your old mate and my old mate, Paul Greengrass, who worked with us on World in Action, Paul is a genius, and you know he's doing the Bourne film right now. But I thought when I saw United '93, which I did in a cinema about 500 yards from the Twin Towers, I just thought, wow, to be able to pull that off with that quality and ambition, and and go for it, and and you know, and he's maybe the most talented person, the most talented person you work with. Yeah, for sure. And he, he was my first boss of Action. Yeah, I know. He's a genius, and and and. But there uh, is still a bit of that in the mix. But when he did Bloody Sunday, yeah, it yeah, was yeah. like yeah, a kind uh, of gritty version of one of yeah, those old World in Action yeah. records. And what a brilliant combination! So you get a fantastic talent like Paul and an amazing story. So it can work brilliantly, like I'm sure his newborn film will be as brilliant as the other two, but equally he can do it on on, on, uh, on other things. And again, that's heartening for me, seeing how people who learnt their trade telling really good, well-structured 30, 60-minute stories can go all the way to the top and be one of the hottest directors in Hollywood. That makes me very happy indeed, because we're all on the same line here. And, and and that is, you know, the ultimate expression. What was your question? <laughs> well, I was going to, uh, conscious of time, uh, leap to today and this new age that we're living in of the super premium documentary. Yeah. And maybe ha- ask you for your take on that generally, but also how, where you see Sherpa okay. fitting into that. The, yeah, because it's, it's genuinely real what's going on. We all know why it's going on because, you know, it's primarily driven in part, it's that thing I said at the beginning about that, that club sandwich analogy. It's, it's, um, it, it's the US factual network struggling to find an audience. It's everyone desperate to find content that people will actually watch in this age where people are watching it, however they're watching it, but they're not sitting down at the scheduled time and watching it on their TV set. It's fueled by the power in the marketplace of the SVOD operators, you know, such obviously as Netflix, such as Amazon, you know, how much did Amazon pay for Top Gear? 250 million, seven, I can't remember. Some $7 million an episode I worked out, uh, US dollars an episode, unbelievable. What they are doing and the reaction that is causing by the TV networks is creating this fantastic opportunity, which is sort of almost Hollywood-esque in terms of the stories they're looking for. You know, the global killer proposition, the, the, if you're doing a Netflix, you know, the binge value, the fact you just keep rolling on and rolling on and watching three or four hours, you know, uh, making a uh, murder, what was it called, making a murder? Making murder. Uh, and, you know, that's what you're looking for, those same factors. So it's sort of, it's all converging. What might make a 40, 50, 60 million dollar movie might also make a 10 hour series, might also make a two hour special. It's all about finding these ideas that are big enough and universal enough and marketable enough and have the star power attached that break through that wall of indifference and people not interested in watching telly like they did anymore and actually getting people to watch things. And that's why it is a fantastic opportunity for us all. And you mentioned the word Sherpa there, which um, 
I don't know if people have seen the film or came to the workshop yesterday. Sherpa was a direct beneficiary of that desire to find these big iconic stories. Because, you know, I'm immensely proud of that film and I love working, you know, as being the only Brit on that immensely talented team with the fantastic Jan Peedham as director. But um, maybe if it had just been out in the old theatrical model, it would have been, you know, you'd done it all right, but maybe not much more. I don't think it would have been a Touching the Void or, or a Senna or a Man on Wire. Um, but now, with that opportunity, and all the TV networks are at Sundance, and all the SVOD gang are at Sundance, looking for the next thing, looking for that idea, which they spend huge amounts of money. I heard a rumor going around yesterday about how much Discovery paid for Sherpa, which was amusing, only in its inaccuracy. But, um, <laughs> um, and suddenly, this thing, which would have been seen, and is gonna be seen in Australia, Sherpa is gonna be seen in Australia from, uh, 31st of August, uh, 31st of March, beg your pardon, suddenly is going out on a network, you know well, you know, on Discovery and in 220 countries and territories all over the world. So tens, if not hundreds of millions of people will see that film. And I'd much rather than see them on a big screen like that with all the beautiful sound and pictures. But if they don't go and see it, I'd much rather they watch it on an iPhone or a crappy computer screen than not watch it at all. And that's the opportunity that is creating this almost feeding frenzy about what we're calling super dogs. And the premium of those ideas is great. And you can now almost, well, you can't just do it with two pages of paper, but you can get from nothing to green light of something that could be six or eight or 10 part series. You can do it in a couple of weeks. You can do it in the room. Now, of course it doesn't happen all the time. Otherwise it would be like we're all in Alaska gold prospecting because it's, there's no easy wins, but some people are doing that. And that's why it's an exciting opportunity because the right idea is pounced upon. Like, you know, 20 producers in a cold beer in a bar. You know, it's the same thing. And, and that's why we're in an exciting time. And that's why it's an opportunity for us all and that's why what Sherpa also proved, it transcended Australian boundaries. It was all Aussie, great Screen Australia, who I totally respect. I have zero need of Screen Australia to do my business, but therefore it makes it easier for me to say they were brilliant and they were brilliant. And then Universal who came in on that film, but we just grew it and grew it and grew it in the same way we did in some of these other things. And, and that was a partnership, a model partnership between, and maybe partnerships is a good way. People here in Australia are thinking, oh God, how do we do Superdocs? It's just the big guys or the guys with the BAFTAs and the Oscars and all that shit. It's not, it's about the story and finding the best way to make the story. And why Sherpa was a great example, and I'm as proud of that as any of those other films I've seen to, you've seen today. It's because it worked perfectly as a collaboration and it, and it was a model co-pro. And you know, there's a model of that, you know, about, doesn't mean any old, idea can suddenly magically turn into a shiny princess because of, of co-pro and partnerships, but it does mean that ideas can travel a long way and can realize their ambition, and that's, the, that's why okay, well, I, I want to ask a you a little story. bit about the development of these super docs, the sort of pros and the yeah, cons oh, yeah. of that, but first, not everybody will have come to the session, so we have got one very short clip of Sherpa, I think. Yeah, everyone knows the story, the avalanche on Everest, oh, that'll do yeah. Well, we, before we go to questions, I, I'd like to take you into that area you mentioned earlier, that um, relationship 
between uh, always complex relationship was between commercial and creative in our business and how that is playing out now in developing these super docs because it strikes me trying to do a couple myself it's, it's getting a bit more like the scripted world uh, which uh kind yeah of quite frustrating actually yeah it <laughs> it's not easy and and particularly the svod people you know the days when you could go with a dog-eared two pages of a half-baked idea with a suggested director and a desperate need for development money are sort of gone. They want the package. They want uh, certainly a sizzle, absolutely a sizzle, certainly a detailed treatment, probably a budget, probably a schedule, certainly talent attached. It's the whole deal. And you're not going to get development money because they want the elements that you've already developed. So the entry point is higher. The rewards are greater, but the entry point is much higher, which is why the chance of success is lower. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. The, the, the chance of success is, is lower. And, but, you know, which is why you get creative. You know, I'm doing one right now where, uh, you know, I'm trying to work with a director from Australia that I just worked with that I can't name, but um, it's, it's just getting the package together that's so important. I never, um, you know, we just hired a big deal agent. Normally I thought in our world agents aren't um, necessary. The way it's changing now, when you're doing the big stuff, it's sort of increasingly is. And often people are asking for names. Are you doing the one that I think Jane Root, who's a sort of friendly competitor, competitor you know, Darinovsky's, Darren Aronofsky, who did Black Swan, didn't he? Um, that's right. Great One, director. It's called One Strange Rock. One Strange Rock, that's right. So he's attached to that. Um, Nat Geo uh, attached Ron Howard, and Ron Howard did stuff. Or they're saying uh, 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 Leonardo DiCaprio was put on board as an exec on, was it called Virunga, that doc last year set in the, um, on the gorilla, the, the animals, not the uh, freedom fighters. And um, it... There's all that star power and linkage and marketability and can you get George Clooney to exec it or do a co-production with Brad Pitt's company? All of that stuff is going on as Superdocs start flying at an altitude which gets more Hollywood-esque, which is why uh, we've... I've had agent relationships in the past at the previous company I, I, I ran, but we've now gone and gone with the biggest in the, one of the biggest in the business because that's the way it is. Um, and it's about the package, not the idea, although the idea is crucial to the package. So with such a high bar for entry, yeah. and if you're in this audience and you don't have George Clooney's home number or an Oscar-nominated film or a shelf full of BAFTAs, what's your path to your super doc? If you've got the world's best idea. Uh, um, I'll give you my email. Um, no, I mean... It is, uh, Sherpa came about because Jen Pedem approached me. I, I knew her vaguely, and I'd like, because she did that brilliant film solo, but Jen approached me, and I liked her, liked the film. We talked about this in one of the other sessions, so I don't want to go over it again. So, you know, sometimes partnerships, sometimes you've got to think out of the box. You've got, in Australia, most of you here, I guess, are Australian, you know, you've got more funding options than I've got in the UK. Um, although I'm sure it doesn't necessarily feel that way all the time to you, but it, it's it, how you, if there were a quick and easy answer, I'd say what it is. If a quick and easy answer, I'd be doing it. Uh, it. It needs lots of different solutions to lots of different options. 
uh, uh, lots of different opportunities, but the opportunities have never been greater. And I don't think this is a flash in the pan. Maybe some of the big factual networks, the TV ones, there are, you know, maybe if some of the films don't work, maybe that will, sub maybe that the temperature will come down a bit on that. But given the power of the SVOD people, and what's going to happen when Apple TV are going to start mm. doing stuff, the world's biggest company, you know, there's talk of them commissioning content. What's going to happen then? And, and, and so this ain't a flash in the pan. It ain't going to go away. Our world is changing. Go with it and seize the opportunity. And back to the thing right at the beginning I was saying about maxing out your story, trying to do it the biggest and the best you can, never has that opportunity been greater than now. Fantastic. Well, um, before you all write, John, your emails, if we have a few minutes left... Phil.Craig at Newtopia. <laughs> CC Jane Root, yes. Um, if you have any questions for John, I think we have a few minutes we can squeeze some in before we're turfed out. It's really dark. I can't... Can somebody with a microphone pick somebody out? So I actually can't see. I'm passing control to the... Mike Bearer. John, you talk about um, maximizing things. Um, just take the, the Franco film. Which, which is, one, sorry? The, the, um, the 127 Hours. Oh, yeah. It, it, and it's, it's dramatized, obviously. It's a drama with actors. Did you find the same level, if you're really honest, did you find the same level of visceral emotion, even though we see the rock and we see the pain, we see the grimace, but just compare it to Touching the Void where it's a sync interview, but we're watching the real people undermine and go through that dilemma again. I mean, there's, the production value is insignificant, but I would perhaps argue that the emotional impact is greater when it's the real thing. And I'm not, not criticizing you for trying it, just, just it's a point of interest. No, keep talking, it's academia. giving me time to think. <laughs> Um, you know, did you, would you, would you, would you do another one like yeah. that? Or would you try and find... Yeah. Um, it, uh, horses for courses, is that a phrase um, you use mm -hmm. um, I mean, you're not wrong, uh, um, but you do it different ways. Yeah. And I believed the fully scripted Hollywood A-list director route we want, went on 127 was a totally immersive experience that squeezed every drop of jeopardy out of the story, just as much as the hybrid version of Touching the Void did out of that. And as occasionally, you know, it was a joy to do Sherpa as a pure doc and to extract the maximum emotion out of that, but you, you, there's different options. So I can't say that's better than the other um, and I know I'm a, in my heart, I'm a journalist and a producer and a storyteller, but i am got to be pragmatic. And sort of we were struggling like with 127 to do it, didn't quite know how we were going to do it. And also didn't want to do it directly like we'd done Touching the Void, but do it differently. So I thought that was a really exciting opportunity. And the thing I'm doing now, which I can't talk about, unfortunately, the, the feature which looks like it might happen, but probably won't. Um, we're doing it the best way, I believe, which is a totally true story. I don't, I'm not suddenly gonna do rom-coms, you know, Notting Hill or Hugh Grant <laughs> things, um, but it's a true story. But actually the way we're doing it, and the subject is dead, which is a factor, 
but I'm convinced the way we're doing it is the right way, which is fully scripted and get a major um, actor or actress to play the lead character. Um, it, so, I mean, it's a good question, and, and uh, I could debate for hours about, about that, but I'm prepared to be pragmatic, um, and, and films can work brilliantly if they're fully dramatised, and they can work... Sometimes nothing beats the power of uh, veracity. Okay, I don't one, think you can one be dogmatic. More, one more question, and we will let John go. God, I've super-docked you into submission. I think, I think you actually have. In that case, I just want to say, before I thank John, which I will do, I just want, I noticed Brit's in the room, and I do believe this is the last session of this kind, and I hope you agree that she's masterminded a brilliant conference, and since she's here, I want to thank her, and I hope you can join me in thanking her for that. So thanks for coming. Thanks for sharing this uh, great opportunity to, to, hear, uh, to hear John explaining um, about the Superdoc in his career. And thank you very much for coming. Thanks, John. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.